Hello, I'm Richard Burton. In today's session, I'd like to invite you to join me on a journey to the center of the mind. As always, we begin by concentrating on the breath. Position yourself as comfortably as possible in the chair you're sitting in or the meditation cushion you're sitting upon and slowly allow your eyes to close. Now, gently draw your breath in and then release it, all the while focusing on the feeling of the breath as it enters and leaves your body. Burton. In today's session, I'd like to invite you to join me on a journey to the center of the mind. As always, we begin by concentrating on the breath. Position yourself as comfortably as possible in the chair you're sitting in or the meditation cushion you're sitting upon. Slowly, allow your eyes to close. Before we turn our full focus to the breath, I'd like you to consider the intention you're bringing to today's session. For instance, ask yourself the following. What sort of wholesome mindset do I hope the exercise of meditation will empower me to adopt? Careful now. Do not think in terms of specific goals. Meditation should never be treated as a goal-centered endeavor. Rather, when we meditate, we prepare ourselves to react mindfully and compassionately to the world around us. Forcing a system of ideals upon the world in which we are mere players would cause us to lose sight of the now, or, if you will, of the very stage beneath our feet. Why, just look at me, after all. I've been nominated seven times for an Academy Award and never won once. Seven times now. Can you imagine? Not even in 1969, when John Wayne edged me out for the Oscar, did I succumb to the bitter sting of inadequacy. Instead, I persisted in maintaining a mindful perspective. This in spite of the fact that everyone agreed I had delivered a performance conveying the care of a master craftsman, the steadfastness of a man carving the Bible onto a blade of glass while Mr. Wayne captured the statue for a display of all the grace and subtlety of a dog eating a shoe. But did I care? Did I care that every word that rolled off my tongue was like some sort of perfectly formed chocolate marble? It was like, it was like an angel twisting the stem of a cherry into a sailor's knot with his tongue, while Mr. John Wayne was content to heave words like missiles from his vomit hold in the style of a lobotomized farmhand for whom the English language was something seen advertised on television, but which he had secretly believed was a scam. Did I firebomb my hotel room bed the night of the ceremony by stuffing blazing Hermes scarves into the champagne bottles? Did I take a shit in a soap dish and pay a bellhop $20, which was a lot of money in those days, mind you, to personally deliver it to Mr. John Wayne on a silver platter? Maybe, maybe yes, but the point is I never let goal setting get in the way of what really mattered. And what really mattered, as I think you'll agree, was finally, finally winning the Best Actor Trophy at the 47th Annual Apple Butter Festival in Rustburger, Virginia. Oh, and, and pray tell Sir Richard, what is the Rustburger Virginia Apple Butter Festival? The less mindful of you listeners out there in Radioland might be asking. It is only the premier Apple Butter Festival in the Shenandoah Valley, hosted by none other than Mr. Ted Nugent, who I understand is a sportsman of some repute, a hypothesis I came to after he told me his entire tuxedo had been sewn together of things he had hunted. A claim, I must admit, I rather doubted until I saw that his cummerbund was still breathing. I took home the Best Actor Prize that year for my involvement in an all-new review of the Henriad at the Rustburger VFW Hall featuring local burlesque legend Screwcap Jugs as all the Henrys. And believe me, there are a load of them. And me as Falstaff, who was renamed for the purposes of the production Ballstaff. Though I don't see any real reason to dwell on that. The important thing is that I got my award. 
And even if it was the case that the trophy had been carved out of butter and later on in the evening was stolen and eaten by a goat, it was Richard, Richard, who got the last laugh as my new pal, Teddy Nugent, strangled that bumptious goat with an extension cord and turned him into a hat on the spot, I might add, which we then proceeded to drink unregulated whiskey out of until I began to believe I could read the minds of the dinner plates. God, it was a grand evening. We danced until sun up to the strains of local revisionist swing synth-pop duo Duke Ellingtron, and Ted regaled me with tales of all the things he kept in his mansion that were made out of other things which he had killed, like a bathtub fashioned from an inverted hollowed-out rhinoceros and a salad spinner made from an ape. By the time I caught him feeding his bow-tie corn from his hand, I found myself so filled with life-affirming joy that... I didn't notice I had walked backwards into the apple butter staging area, a treacherous pit from which the cauldron had long since been removed, but in which the white-hot cooking stones still smacked and smoldered. But as I always told O'Toole, you can't call it a proper party unless it ends with somebody butts up in a bonfire. Which is not to say that it sunk in right away what was happening. It was really only after I looked around and saw everyone staring at me with those unmistakable, holy shit, you're actually 100% on fire right now faces that I really caught on. So yes, I, I did the dance. I did the man on fire dance, gracefully waving my arms above my head in a stirring display which caused the pre-dawn sky to come alive with rhythmic scintillations. Let me tell you, that was more satisfying by far than ever hearing some smug jack-a-dandy after looking up from the parted envelope speak into the audience with a barely concealed disdain the words, and the award goes to Richard Burton. Because at least I can be sure that I earned what I earned by never compromising my principles. Back in my day, you couldn't just say any word you wanted. You had to imply the meaning of the racier bits with an adroitly raised eyebrow or a well-timed snap of the thighs. It all came out of us having been raised in more discerning times. Even though my family was so poor, we ate squirrel paste on crackers every day except Sunday, when we were allowed to lick salt off our father's thumb. My mother made sure we had mouths we could be proud of. If we were allowed to swear, we had to tamp down the impact of the curse by turning it into an acronym. Therefore, a spiteful gent whom no one had any use for and who had use for no one, might be referred to as a circus usher noodle toot, while engaging in the physical act of love was to foaming undercooked kumquats someone. And in those days, it would more often than not be a whacking hose opium rug embosser, assuming you could even afford the sixpence asking price. That is how we managed to gain a sense of the world as a collision of domains, a clash of illusions, some resting just on the surface of the visible and some residing far far behind the carefully guarded curtain. Why do you think I was so dumbstruck by the ham-fisted treatment of my life when Elizabeth, in Lifetime's ridiculously postulant Liz and Dick? I'm not saying I'm in any way in competition with the candy-faced shill they drug out of central casting to play me, but if that Abigail sassy saddle-hole gets a cable ace award out of this, I will crap in a kitten's face. You've been listening to Dick Sits. A series of guided meditations led by Richard Burton. This has been a presentation of The Better Boyfriends for adventuresinmeditating.com. <laughs>